It appears that the only thing that can cool off Canada's red-hot housing market is a global pandemic. Hello and welcome to the Unpublished Cafe. I'm Ed Hand. April saw a 10% reduction in Toronto home prices due to COVID-19. With more than 2 million jobs lost since the pandemic, the current unemployment rate has soared to 13%. Those kind of numbers keep homeowners up at night wondering where their next mortgage payment's coming from. Canada Mortgage and Housing estimates about 10% of Canadians are applying to defer those payments. In Ottawa, which is somewhat insulated due to the public service, home sales dropped more than 50% for the month. And we're heading into the traditional busy season for realtors. To get some perspective on what that means for those buying and selling, I look forward to chatting with Deb Burgoyne. She's the president of the Ottawa Real Estate Board. Now, real estate was the key driver for the Canadian economy. And to get a view on the impacts of the industry and our finances, I'm pleased to be joined by Ian Lee, professor and MBA director at the Sprott School of Business at Carleton University. And, and Ian, you know, how, how big is the real estate industry in Canada today? Um, I don't have it at my fingertips, the GDP, contribution of GDP, but I certainly do have numbers available. I'm a, many years ago, I was the mortgage manager of the fourth largest branch of the Bank of Montreal in Canada, Ottawa main office. That was in the 70s and the 1980s. Um, some may feel that that data is out of date, but the real estate industry hasn't uh, changed uh, fundamentally. You still evaluate people based on their cash flow, their collateral, their credit rating, uh, the amount of equity in the property, uh, growth in the economy, you know, that sort of thing. Those, those, The evaluation process hasn't changed. And, um, and so now to on to your questions about some data. 60% of Canadians... Uh, own their home, uh, and I mean by that house or condo, however you define home, uh, own their own residential um, piece of real estate. That data is from Statistics Canada. We have one of the highest levels of home ownership uh, in the world. Um, and um, uh, sorry, I'm I'm sorry, I'm I'm thinking of different numbers at the moment. We have 70% home ownership in the world. Okay, mm-hmm. we have 70% of Canadians own their homes, um, and um, it's one of the highest rates uh, in in the world. Um, secondly, real estate prices uh, throughout my, my lifetime, and I'm really talking post-Second World War, um, you know, 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, we've never experienced a, a, a decline. We've had regional blips from time to time, you know, in the oil sector, in Alberta, that sort of thing. But if you look at national real estate prices, um, they've steadily increased over the 70-odd years. Um, the couple of other quick stats I'll give you is, according to CMHC and StatsCan, um, and I'm quoting this from memory, but I'm pretty close. Uh, roughly half of all the homeowners are mortgage-free, uh, have no mortgage. They're not indebted. Uh, obviously, these are older people who bought their house, like me. Thirty, I bought my house 31 years ago. There's people who bought their houses 35 and 40 years ago. Some of them bought it 20 years ago. Roughly half, if my memory serves me correct when I did the paper on this, about half don't owe any money. Another 25% have modest mortgages where they owe less than half of the value of the property. So when you actually deconstruct the numbers, and actually, and I mean deconstruct, drill down into the data, about 20, 25% of homeowners are um, ha- uh, deeply mortgaged, heavily mortgaged. And we know who they are. They're the same people when I was the mortgage manager in the 70s and 80s. They're overwhelmingly young people just starting out. Um, uh, they're just graduated, you know, and they've been working for two or three or four or five years, starting a family and new Canadians who have emigrated here. And they're disproportionately um, the over-leveraged, heavily leveraged, whichever word you want to use. People are overwhelmingly in large urban cities, and especially so in the GTA 
and Vancouver. When you strip out, and you can do it analytically, uh, you know, on paper, and remove, extract, and remove, subtract, let's use the old-fashioned word, subtract the GTA data and the Vancouver data, uh, and just look at the ROC, the rest of Canada. House prices are very reasonable, and people are not heavily indebted. They're not up to their you know, ears in, 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 in enormous amounts of debt. And uh, so what I'm suggesting to you is that the housing problem, to the extent that we have a housing problem, some people say we do, some don't, uh, it's overwhelmingly concentrated in the GTA and Vancouver. You know, you look at house prices in eastern Ontario. You can buy a house in Prescott, Ontario, on the St. Lawrence River. Well, not literally in the river, maybe a block or two back, for $150,000. You go to the Maritimes, you can get houses down there for under $200,000. So there is a a housing problem, uh, but it's not, you cannot, as many do, extrapolate and say, everybody who's a homeowner in Canada and everybody who owns a home is in deep trouble. They're not. You know, we, we've talked about the market being so hot. Is it driven by foreign investment or is it, uh, is it um, more domestic investment? Um, I've seen the, uh, the studies and there have been some studies done. And um, I've never believed it was uh, due to foreign investment uh, or foreigners buying. I know it's because I've had people write me and tell me how um, I don't understand the real estate market. <laughs> I spent... As a professor, I spend most of my days, when most people are working and doing whatever, I spend my days poring over data, Statistics Canada data, day in and day out. That's the luxury of being a professor. More importantly, it doesn't confirm with reality. Uh, Canada is a very large market, 38 million people, and um, I believe it's 16 million households uh, is the number right now, the stats can quotes. And for at the margin for to suggest that 500 or 1,000 or 2,000 or 4,000 people are going to move the, the market just doesn't accord with statistics. It doesn't accord with mathematics. It doesn't accord with empirical reality. Um, that's the first point. But the, the, of course, the market's growing. So then that raises the very obvious question. Why is the market growing? And there's a very, very obvious answer. And it's an empirical, factual answer. And I've looked at countries around the world to corroborate this insight. Countries that are growing in absolute numbers in terms of their population. In other words, one year the country is 30 million and 10 years later they're 35 million or 33 million are growing. A growing country with growing numbers of people need a growing number of houses. I mean, it's just so blindingly obvious. Mm -hmm. And people can say, well, there's no such thing as countries that shrink. Yes, there are. Japan has been shrinking for years. House prices are going down because there's fewer buyers behind the current generation. They're going to go over a 50-year period from 150 million people to about 100 million people. 50 million Japanese people are going to vanish from the planet Earth. And just all you have to do, you don't need an experiment. You don't need to look at data. Just ask yourself a question. If before the housing stock serviced 150 million people, and now 50 million people have vanished over a period of time, that suggests there's going to be an awful lot of empty houses. And that's exactly what's happened. We can see it on a microcosm in some municipal areas of the United States of America. I'll quote one. Detroit, Michigan, in its heyday in the 50s and 60s, was 2 million people. Stats, U.S. Census Bureau data, 2 million people. Mm -hmm. Today, it's half a million people. Oh, my goodness. Like a million and a half people vanished from Detroit. Yes, they did. They moved. They moved away. So what happened? Well, there's hundreds of thousands of abandoned houses in Detroit. What did that do to Detroit real estate? It collapsed. 
And so when you look at that, the, I've long argued that the single most important predictor of long-term increase in prices for real estate is the long-term growth or not of population. So you can apply this to any market. You know, you can look at rural markets, rural Newfoundland and the outports, where the land values are depreciating. Why? Well, people are moving out of the outports and going into the towns, or they're moving out of Newfoundland and Labrador completely, and they're moving to Toronto to get a job. So those communities and those countries that are experiencing growth in population are going to experience growth in real estate prices in the long run, in the medium-long term. I'm not denying that there aren't short-term blips you know, caused by very short-term situations like a coronavirus for six months, 18 months. I'm talking long-term trends. And then the question is, well, if the birth rate's negative in Canada, how on earth can we be growing? Well, the answer is very clear. Because we bring in over a million new Canadians, which I support, by the way. I do support this. This is not a closet argument against immigration. We bring in 350,000 new people a year to Canada. Multiply that by three, and you're over a million. The city of Ottawa is one million people. So I'm not saying they'll come to Ottawa. What I'm saying to you is, is that Canada grows by one Ottawa every three years. Now, is there anybody listening who thinks that you can drop a million people into a country and not have to build any new houses or high rises? It's preposterous silliness. Of course we have to build more houses. Of course we have to build more rental properties and more uh, homes and detached homes and semi-detached homes and row houses, etc. because there's another million people coming into the country every three years. This is not rocket science. This is not advanced calculus. No, sounds this like basic math. Basic arithmetic. Yeah. Ian Lee's joining us on the Unpublished Cafe. He's professor and MBA director at the Sprott School of Business at Carleton University. As we talk about the impact on real estate from COVID-19. And, you know, Ian, many Canadians have run up uh, their debt on the growing value of their mm -hmm. home. Uh, yes. What happens now? Um, the experience I had is, is, I think, instructive. And I'm going to use it and to, to apply to this to extrapolate. Uh, in 1980. Uh, interest rates hit a level that everyone at the time said we would never hit. I started as a mortgage manager. I think rates were at eight, and then they went to 10, and everyone was saying, well, they won't go past 10. Then they went to 10. We, well, they won't go past 12. Then they went to 12. We, well, they're not, absolutely not going to go past 14. They peaked at 20, and there was a uniform national consensus that this was going to lead to unprecedented collapse of the real estate market, um, similar to the depression, uh, and, uh, you know, just absolute unmitigated disaster on a national scale and that house prices would collapse. Nobody would be able to sell their house and that, uh, all kinds of people would go delinquent. Uh, so what did happen? Well, we know the delinquency ratio because it's required by law to be posted in the bank act and it is published. Anybody can look it up at any time. And when we went into the 1980 uh, interest uh, recession with 20% interest rates, the delinquency ratio before the rates went to the roof was at one-third of 1%. And at the end of the crisis, it was 1%. So it, it went from one-third of 1% to 1%, which meant that 99% of Canadians who owned a mortgage continued to pay the mortgage on time. And and uh, I argued that I coined the phrase at the time. And after I joined academia and started doing media interviews, I was using this phrase from the very beginning. Uh, I had a theory that the reason why we didn't suffer a catastrophic collapse was because of what I called the bank of mom and dad. And I had firsthand experience where I had customers coming into the branch uh, 
who the, the husband and wife were laid off. They had no income and other than very modest unemployment insurance. And their mortgage payment was much bigger. And they were making their mortgage payment on time. And I would ask some of them very politely and respectfully, you know, I'm very happy to see the mortgage payment. You know, how do you do that? Well, my parents are helping us. And I saw this repeatedly. And in this current situation, before the, uh, the coronavirus kicked in, I did look up the national delinquency ratio. It was one half of 1%. Hmm. Uh, and so I am not predicting that the mortgage delinquency ratio is going to go to 10 or 20. First off, we've developed uh, things this time, policies this time that we did not have in 8081. Banks did not accept you to go delinquent 90 days and add it onto the mortgage payment. Absolutely not. You had to sell your property, which some did. Or you had to get the money from the bank of mom and dad or from friends or somebody. Now we have much more generous, uh, progressive, liberal, whatever word you want to use, policies that are designed to ensure that people won't go delinquent. So I'm going to very boldly and very confidently predict that there's not going to be a dramatic increase in delinquency. Uh, in fact, there's going to be a tiny, tiny, tiny uptick. And we've already seen the numbers coming out of the Canadian Bankers Association and the banks and the Finance Canada. So I don't think there will be. Now let's turn to the price side, the average value of the property side. I'm not suggesting that this, the, 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 the house prices don't respond at all, that they're immune to this. I'm not suggesting that. I can tell you what did happen in 1980-81 is the real estate market froze up. And I mean by froze up, when people saw they couldn't sell their house, instead of saying, well, I'm going to cut the value of my house by 50% or 25% or some ridiculous amount, people said, nuts, I'm going to stay put. Most people, most of the time, do not have to sell. That's a fundamental feature of real estate. The only people who absolutely have to sell are where there's a death and you're handling the estate because you, the children, have inherited the house from mom and dad and they've both passed away. And unless you decide to keep it and live in it, you have to sell the house. The second one is divorce. And I certainly saw that, experienced that as a mortgage manager. And the third one was where you're transferred to another city and the employer is ordering you and saying, you know, you're, you're being transferred, you're in the armed forces and you're no longer an Ottawa, you've got to report to Vancouver. And or you're with a company. And, uh, and that's a forced transfer, a forced posting. The number of people who fall into that category annually is, is a tiny, tiny, tiny fraction of the totality of home ownership in Canada. In other words, most people are not being transferred most of the time. Hmm. And most people are not uh, getting divorced most of the time on our, you know, week right. by week. I mean, yes, there's divorce, but it's very small numbers. So my point being that what happens when you have a, a negative impact like this on the real estate we know how the market responds. The market responds by freezing up. And I mean by freezing up, most people stop listing their houses. And the odd one that does will just sit there and say, I'm not, I'm not flexible. I want my price. And if you don't pay it to me, well, fine, I'll just sit on my house. And so for that, real estate's very different from the capital markets. Very, very different for one simple fundamental reason. People live in their house. You cannot live in your brick of gold. You cannot live in the shares that you own of Shopify or a bond of the Bank of Montreal. You cannot live in financial intangibles. And when people hear me say that, they say, well, of course I can't. That's the fundamental difference. You can live in your house. And in fact, if you sell it, you have a problem. Because you've got to go live somewhere else. 
Yes. And if you're not going to buy a house, that means you got to go rent a property. And so for that reason, real estate ownership has some very, very, very different features compared to other asset classes, as they're called. Art is an asset class. Minerals, like gold, is an asset class. Stocks are an asset class. Bonds are an asset class. Real estate's an asset class. Real estate is unique. And for that reason, I am suggesting to you very strongly, there will not be a collapse. If we define collapse as a, de a decline in the price by more than 20% across the board, I don't believe it. Oh, hell, I, I won't even think, I don't think it's going to be on 10% across the board. What we're going to see, and we've already seen it, is a collapse in the number of listings. Because people will say, I'm not putting my house up for sale right now because people are going to try and you know to get me to accept a very low price that I'm not willing to accept. So forget it. I'm just not listing it. Ian, I want to thank you for joining us. My pleasure. Sorry for talking so long, but I know the subject very well. <laughs> not a problem. Not a problem. All the best, Ian. Okay, thanks. Ian Lee is a professor and MBA director at the Sprott School of Business at Carleton University. As mentioned, this is uh, the time of year that homes hit the market, and a lot of people want to have that process completed by the time your kids head back to school in September. Deb Burgoyne is the president of the Ottawa Real Estate Board, and, and she joins us now. And, and Deb, what impacts have you seen, and obviously it's the Ottawa market, on the Ottawa market from the, uh, from the pandemic? Uh, good morning, Ed. Um, the numbers are considerably down in April, obviously, from March. Uh, and um, although I do see clarity for our members of how they're to operate, uh, there's a lot more protocols in place. And, uh, you know, you're always concerned about clients on both sides and realtors on both sides, but now it, all that is, is quite heightened. You know, with the concern on physical distancing, how can somebody buy or, or sell in this pandemic world now? How, how, how have your realtors adapted? Uh, well, I could give you a, a very fresh uh, idea of that. I just filled out a bunch of forms myself for some showings tomorrow. So uh, there is screening required by what the, the vendor, obviously, the buyers, the realtors, et cetera, quite lengthy documents uh, disclosing, you know, when you've been away, if you've been exposed, et cetera. They need to be returned before you can book appointments. I noticed today they're getting even stricter. Some of them are asking that you actually do wear masks where we, before we were, um, you know, covering your hands, keeping your hands in your pockets. Um, for instance, what's been in place actually for the last couple of months is that if you must buy or sell, especially if you're bringing in a buyer, um, the realtor really accesses the keys and the door and the buyers are limited to who's going to be on title and they should not be touching any surfaces, using any bathrooms, et cetera. Uh, some are providing ways for you to disinfect your hands when you get in, whether it's soap and water and paper towels or, you know, Lysol wipes. Um, yeah, minimal access, so you're not allowed in for generally more than 15, 30 minutes. As I said, it should only be the people on title that are in, you know, no extended family or friends or definitely not any children. Um, yeah, I think oh, that's okay. pretty much it. You know, obviously, virtual tours are uh, are nice, and I know realtors use them a lot more now. But you know, I, I can't see that becoming like the the only way you'd be able to sell a home now. Is you know, if you're going to invest in something as substantial as your home, you're going to want to be able to you know see it, feel it, touch it, that kind of a thing, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, it's, it's a significant investment. I mean. You know, I really think some of this practice is not a bad thing because, frankly, b before this even happened, when you'd get calls 
to show properties, you know, part of our job is to qualify the caller anyway, especially if they're not a client of yours, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And so I was always trying to make sure that one, you know, financially, could they afford to purchase the property? Because of course, it's everybody's time and primarily my vendor's time to get ready for the showing and and my time if they don't have another realtor. Um, Lots of times buyers don't care if they, you know, kicking tires because that's, that's what they want to do. But um, I think this is good for two things. One, take a look at your hard criteria, right? Make mm-hmm. sure it meets your minimum criteria, the home. Take a look at the photos and the tours, the measurements of the rooms, drive by the community and make sure it's got the right vibe and uh, features that you want in it. And I think that those things should be in place anyway, frankly. Um, but I think this is going to help us drive that home further for some buyers. And I think in the end, if everybody is smart about it and both the vendor and the buyer want to transact, they're going to do what they need to do to be safe all around. So that's cleanliness, um, minimal touching, minimal access. You know, yes, you should be able to get in, but it's, you know, you're not sitting at someone's kitchen table, right. you know, discussing an offer and, and your kids are not jumping on beds. You know, yeah, exactly. <laughs> that's the kind of thing that happens, yeah. right? So. Uh, you know, for those who were in the midst of a transaction when when this pandemic arrived, did, did it like throw them a big loop in, in terms of what the lawyers, the realtors and all that had to do? Or did everything just seem to move along? Um, I think initially there was a, like a paralyzation. <laughs> like people were like, everybody was, okay, okay, now what do we do, right? But I think within about a three-week period, there became some clarity. You know, the broker just took the lead. Uh, and said, look, you know, we're absolutely not doing open houses, got some legal input on forms, indemnity forms, et cetera, and screening. Uh, you know, and we took the lead, obviously, of the government and the health organizations. Of how can we do this? And, you know, how serious is this? And what do we need to do to, you know, safeguard ourselves? So that was helpful. Um, the lawyers, and et cetera, were still deemed essential services, as is the registry office. And my photographer was fine. We listed a couple of vacant properties ourselves. And, you know, we were asked to leave the door unlocked, leave all the lights on, and nobody to be in the home when the, when the photographer was in there. So there's ways, there's ways to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, and everybody's got a different tolerance, right? You know, everyone's got tolerances and comfort levels. But I think there's a lot of clarity now on all sides, right? Whether you're the homeowner or the buyer or the representatives, the photographers, whoever, of what we need to do. And that's become really clear over the last two months. What else do you think the real estate industry needs to do to keep business going during the, the pandemic? Well, I think we need to be diligent about the things I just laid out there. I, I mm-hmm. understand there might be a couple of people that, you know, I, I don't want to comment that are not taking it as serious as they should. You know, we have over 3,200 members. So I get some comments sometimes, but the majority of people get it. And it's really important to make your client feel on both sides of the transaction that you've got this handle in a way that they individually feel comfortable because everyone's a bit different, right? Yeah. Um, you, you, as, as of anything, there's A to Z. And as long as you are respectful and diligent with your communications and your execution, um, I think that people should be feeling better over time because we're not really not sure how this is going to unfold going forward. Um, so we need to, to do what we can to make everybody comfortable. Deb, thanks for joining us. You're most welcome. Thanks for having me.
Deb Burgoyne is the president of the Ottawa Real Estate Board. As you've heard in the podcast, about 10% of Canadians have applied to defer their mortgage payments in the pandemic, and we'd like to know. Have you had to defer your mortgage payments due to COVID-19? Yes, no, or I'm a renter. You can log on and vote right now at unpublished.vote. I want to thank Ian Lee from the Sprott School of Business at Carleton University, as well, Deb Burgoyne. She's the president of the Ottawa Real Estate Board. And I want to thank you for listening to the Unpublished Cafe. Stay safe. I'm Ed Hand. <laughs>